The Old Testament reading comes from Genesis 2:25 through chapter 3, verse 24. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you have returned to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out and his hand 
and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. Will you please join me in our psalm? Our psalm today is Psalm 139, verses 1 through 12. We will read responsively. O Lord, you have searched me out and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You examine my path and my places of rest, and you acquainted with my ways. Indeed, there is not a word on my tongue, but you, O Lord, know it altogether. You have enclosed me behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, so excellent I cannot attain to it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I climb up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, you are there also. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even, oh, even there shall your hand lead me, and your right hand shall not hold me. Your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, then shall my night be turned to day. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as clear as the day. The darkness and the light to you are both alike. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Today's New Testament reading is from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 23. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The word of the Lord. Our gospel lesson this morning comes from John chapter 8, verses 34 through 47. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Church, this is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. 
I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, and yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the work that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works that your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do what your father desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But I tell you the truth, but you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I am telling you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the word of God. The reason that you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. We're continuing in a sermon series in the book of Genesis. This week we're in Genesis 3. If you brought a Bible with you, please open it up to Genesis chapter 3. It's the first book in the Bible probably about two or three pages in. If you didn't bring a Bible today and you want one, take one of these blue Bibles that's on the table in the back. And if you don't own a Bible, then one of these is yours as our gift to you. This is the end of the beginning of Genesis. First three chapters kind of set up everything else for that book, everything else for the Bible, and everything else for human existence. And so three chapters in, we already see that everything has gone wrong. Genesis 1, an absolutely majestic story of God's creation of his earth. Genesis 2, inspirational story of God forming and equipping his people. Genesis 3, everything goes wrong. We see the story of mankind's fall from grace and his fall into a sinful existence. There's three things that we can look at in this chapter that are the result of sin, and in this order is when they show up. We see guilt, we see shame, and we see consequences. Because this is a passage entirely about sin, and for some people that's hard to listen to. This is also a passage from which we get the doctrine that's, that's expounded in the rest of the Bible. We get the doctrine of original sin, that all of mankind, because we descended from Adam and Eve, that all of us were born, that we inherited this sinful nature from them. The doctrine of original sin is actually one of the, the main differences between the the Western Church, Catholics and Protestants, and the Eastern Orthodox Church. It's a little too simple to say that we believe in original sin and they don't. It's more nuanced than that. But this doctrine of original sin is really where we get a lot of our theology from and a lot of how we believe life works. And as you read this, if you have, if you have too low of a view of sin, if you think that this is just good people doing bad things, the ultimate result of that is that you end up having too low of a view of God and too low of a view of Christ, and you don't understand your need for him. So, we start off this passage with a very relatable thing, temptation. Now, the serpent 
who comes up to Eve. The serpent here is never called Satan. But the interpretation has always been that this is some kind of animal version of Satan. So that's what we're going to go with. In the last chapter, God said, Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you do, you will die. Satan rolls up and says, Did God really say that? And here's where Eve makes two mistakes. These are very common mistakes. When you follow the godly path of living, it is a narrow road, and there are two ditches that you can fall into on either side of it very easily. One is called license or licentiousness, where nothing really matters and my actions don't really have any consequences. It's kind of, I love to sin, God loves to forgive, no big deal, it's a match made in heaven. And so that's Eve's first thing. She listens. I'm sorry, that's Eve's second thing. Before that, before that, she falls off into the other ditch that's possible when you're living a godly life, and that other ditch is legalism. Legalism tries to add things to the Word of God, maybe with the best of intentions. But she ends up adding her own spin to the very rules that God had given them and then saying it came from the mouth of God. This is the danger of legalism. We add our own rules, maybe even out of a desire to protect ourselves for others, but we add our own rules to what God says, and then we claim, we claim them to be the word of God. This is something that people have struggled with up to this day. So the serpent says, did God really say don't eat? And Eve says, God said don't eat. He said don't even touch it because you will die, which he didn't. And Satan does what Satan always does. He then tells Eve half a truth. He says, you won't surely die. I mean, Eve did just say, we can't even touch this thing or we're going to die. And Satan's like, no, you won't. But then he goes on to say another half truth because he leaves one part of it out. He says, your eyes will be opened if you eat this. You'll understand good and evil. And that's true. They did. The only thing was it came with a curse that now they were going to die. Because of this action, people now die. It's a part of life. So Eve takes this fruit, which somehow we've, in our culture, decided was an apple, but almost definitely wasn't. Eve takes this fruit, she gives it to Adam, and the two of them eat. And so immediately, right when they did that, we see problem one, guilt. They violated God's law. They are guilty of sin. The moment you break God's law or go against God's commandments, you are guilty of breaking God's law or going against God's commandments. And this is huge. This is a bigger deal than everything else that comes after it. This is honestly the biggest of Adam and Eve's problems. Just like when we do it, it's the biggest of our problems, even though we can't always see the immediate ramifications of it. But it's the guilt of their sin, the very fact that they sinned, that causes everything else that's going to happen. And that, that kind of guilt language, you hear that a lot picked up, especially in Paul's epistles. It's kind of a heavenly, heavenly courtroom language of justification and righteousness that so much of the Protestant Reformation was about. When we violate God's law, that's, that's it. That's the ballgame. We cannot work ourselves back into His good graces, no matter what we do. People who think that human beings are, are fundamentally good but just occasionally do bad things, probably also have a view that somehow we can work ourselves back into God's good graces if we just do enough good things. 
There are some religions that are based on this. And that heaps such an enormous burden onto the head of you and me. To think that we, if we violate a holy God's holy law, that there's anything that we can do to try to work ourselves back into that. And you can exhaust yourself for the rest of your life trying to do it, and it's never going to happen. We cannot atone ourselves because we are now, thanks to Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve and, and everybody who came after them, Adam and Eve are now sinful people. It's not that we're sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It's part of our nature. And so sinful people cannot atone for that sin because the Bible shows us over and over that in order for sin to, to be forgiven, it requires a spotless lamb, a perfect sacrifice. And Adam and Eve, as wonderful as they probably were, were no longer that. When we're sin, we, we are guilty of breaking the law of the perfect lawgiver, whether we feel bad about it or not, whether it has real-world consequences or not. The fact that we have tried to become like God, we have seen His law, we have heard His rules, and we said, I've got a better idea. We think we know better than He does how life should go. That, in and of itself, brings the guilt of sin upon us. And that's why... In our passage, God came down to find Adam and Eve because they had transgressed his law, because they were guilty. He came to find them in the cool of the evening, which is a great phrase, but it also might be a little bit of a Hebrew pun. The, the idea of the cool of the evening might be a Hebrew idiom, but it's also a bit of wordplay because the word for cool of the evening is also the same word. For, what it really says is the wind of the evening. And if you know anything about Hebrew... The word for wind is the same word for spirit. Remember, God, so you can look at it like this. God came down in the spirit of the day. Remember, it's the Holy Spirit. He's the one that Jesus said came to convict the world of its sinfulness. God came to find them because he knew his law had been broken and he needed to show them their guilt. And one of their immediate reactions, one of the immediate results of that is the next thing in this passage, shame. The effects of sin in our lives are not just that we have disobeyed the divine judge and lawgiver. It's also that we have run away from the divine father. We talk about Genesis 3 and original sin a lot in our church, and, and it's good that we have a healthy doctrine of sin. But that healthy doctrine of sin also has to be ground in Genesis 1 and 2 not just Genesis 3. We have to not only understand what we've done, we have to see what we've lost. Think of Adam and Eve. They had everything. They had everything and they lost it because they gave into temptation. And the knowledge of that loss, the knowledge of the fact that their choices, their actions were directly responsible for God's attitude toward them and directly responsible for their new reality is more than they can bear. And so instead of dealing with it, what do they do? They do what so many of us do. They cover it up. They look to, to make themselves feel better, to alleviate their shame by covering up their shame and not looking at it. Shame can be a powerful motivator and sometimes even a positive motivator when we deal with it properly, but that is almost never the case because it's really hard to do. Shame is a huge topic in our world today, um, mostly because it's so tragically misunderstood. The idea of being publicly shamed, which we see a lot more and more these days, that is as old as 
human society. It finds different outlets in different times from being put in the stocks in the town square for hours on end to the struggle sessions of Maoist China to the modern call-out culture of bringing up past infractions, no matter how minor, from decades ago to call someone's character into question. There's a book that I cannot recommend enough to you called The Soul of Shame by Dr. Kurt Thompson, and it's excellent. Dr. Thompson is a, is a scientist, I'm sorry, he's a psychiatrist, but he has a, a, a specialty in neurology, and he's also a committed Christian. And he details how the neurochemistry of the brain is actually affected by shame. And how these processes, the way that our mind actually physically works, actually have biblical corollaries in things like Genesis 3. It is a, an excellent and very readable resource to anyone who deals with an undue burden of shame in their lives. Shame is a huge topic in our world today, and it comes up in different ways. But I, I, I want to be clear here. The kind of shame that Adam and Eve are dealing with here, the kind of shame that's in view here, this is a shame people feel when they did something. This is not the kind of shame that someone feels when something happens to them. That comes up a lot in, in our world in cases of childhood abuse or sexual trauma. That is not the kind of shame that's in view. The kind of shame I'm talking about here, this, this Genesis 3 kind of shame, is not from something that happened to you. It's from something that you did. Adam and Eve were guilty of sin the moment that they did it. What happened next, and the reason they, reason they realized that they were naked, and they felt shame. They realized what they had done because for the first time they realized that they were naked. They had eaten of this tree that gave them the knowledge of good and evil. It opened their eyes and it alerted them to their real condition. So what did they do? They covered it up. They hid. I have to say, as I've been thinking about this passage this week, I am, I am embarrassed to say a huge amount of my life has been covering up and hiding from shame. My whole life I've struggled with this, and it, it comes down to a fundamental misunderstanding of sin. The person who feels shame and spends most of their time trying to cover it up and hide from it has confused the idea of right and wrong with the idea of caught and not caught. Right and wrong is a function of guilt. Caught and not caught is an outworking of the shame that we feel. In an effort to stay in someone's good graces, in an effort to not face judgment, in an effort maybe to try to cover up some offense before someone else can figure out what we did, what do we do? We cover it up and we hide. And the lengths that we will go, all of us, the lengths that we will go to hide our shame from people. We try to distract people. We lie creating huge webs of lies that are exhausting. We delete texts, we falsify documents, gaslighting people, trying to convince them that the thing that they saw isn't really what they saw. I mean, look at Adam and Eve. Look at, look at the lengths that they went to to cover up their shame. In about one sentence, they invented needles, textiles, and art just to cover up their shame. And so do we, because we've inherited their fallen nature. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together 
and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the, Lord, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the woman hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They cover themselves up so they don't have to look at their shame and then they try to hide from God so they don't have to see the source of their shame. They tried to hide from the God that created the garden in the midst of his garden, the futility of the things that we do to try to cover up shame. They tried to hide from the one who knows them better than anyone, who literally created them in the midst of this garden that he created. It would, be, it would honestly be laugh out loud funny if it wasn't so tragic. And then they did the next thing that people do with shame. They tried to deflect it. They tried to put it off on somebody else. It's the, the first recorded history, it's, it's, it's the first recorded spin in history. They tried to put a good face on their actions. It'd be funny if it wasn't so tragic. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of that tree of which I commanded you not to eat? What's the first thing that Adam says? Does he say, I, I did. I did. I feel awful about it. I broke your law. No. He doesn't. God says, have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And, and Adam says, the woman, the, the woman that you gave me, you did this. The woman that you gave me to be with, she gave me the fruit. And, and then, I, um, then I ate it. And so God turns to Eve and she doesn't do any better. Verse 13, the Lord God says to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman says, the, the serpent, the serpent, part of your creation. You did this. The serpent deceived me, and so I ate. They dealt with their shame in a very human way. And you might look at this. It's very easy to look at this and say, what a couple of dummies. How could they think that they could deceive literally God? But I can't say that when I read this. I have done these kinds of things over and over and over in my life, trying to deflect, trying to hide, lying. Instead of realizing, as Adam and Eve should have realized, that they were image bearers of God, lovingly created by him to have a, a unique and special relationship with him that nothing else on this planet has. They had, already, they had already seen him demonstrate his goodness to them and his love for them in the very act of his creation and in his relationship that he had with them. They demonstrated that in that moment, at least, they saw God as far more the cruel taskmaster from Jesus' parable of the talents than as the benevolent and loving father that he truly is. When we deal with our sin by trying to alleviate our shame, we are saying, oh man, I messed that up really bad. I hope my dad doesn't find out. When we deal with our shame by remembering who we are in Christ, that's when we get to say, oh man, I messed up really bad. I have to go tell my dad. But even when we run and tell our father what we have done, even when we confess our guilt and, and beat our breasts and say, God, be merciful on me, a sinner, even when we have done that and we know that we are forgiven through the blood of Christ, there are still consequences to sin. And that's the third thing that we see in the last, half of, in the, in the last part of chapter 3. Sin has real-world consequences. Apart from the, the, the cosmic consequences that it has in the heavenly courtroom of God, and apart from the internal consequences it has in the shame that I feel, sin has real-world consequences to it. 
If a Christian CEO comes to me and, and confesses that she has embezzled millions of dollars from her company and she feels awful about it, I'm going to hear her confession. I'm going to pray with her. I'm going to, as a representative of the church, I'm going to pronounce God's forgiveness on her because of her genuine repentance. And I'm going to remind her that God has forgiven her and no longer holds her sin against her, has put it as far away from her as the east is from the west. And then I'm going to sit with her while she calls the police and while she calls the board of her firm and confesses what she's done because sin has consequences. God has forgiven her. And that's the most important part by far. When, when David sins against Bathsheba and Uriah by having Uriah killed so that he can take Bathsheba to be his adulterous wife, when he does that, he eventually writes a psalm and says, against you, God, against you alone have I sinned. And that's not true. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a metaphor. It's hyperbole. But the sin that we do against God is so much greater. The affront to God's holiness that we do is so much greater than the sin that we do against each other. But... The sin that we do against each other really does have real-world consequences. It's a violation of God's law. It's a severing of our relationship with Him. But the horizontal consequences of that vertical violation are very real. Oftentimes today, I will hear of, because I subscribe to a bunch of pastor newsletters and websites, there are more and more churches that are being accused of covering up scandals and sins committed by their members or by their leadership instead of simply confessing them and accepting their consequences. Now, it is easy for me to look at those and say, my goodness, thank God, I would not be like that. I would never do that. It's easy for me to, to kind of hide behind a barrier and lob grenades like that because I've never had to deal with that as a pastor. And God willing, I never will. But if I did, I'd like to think that I would be able to slow down enough to recognize that the real-world consequences of whatever confessing our sins is pales in comparison to the vertical ones. There were consequences for Adam and Eve, and there are consequences for us because of what Adam and Eve did. Because of what Adam and Eve did, God says the following. Verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to that of your husband, but he shall rule over you or he shall dominate you. Then he turns to Adam and he says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, you, were, you came from dust, and to dust you shall return. So God is saying, I've created you to be my representatives and my stewards, to be my supervisors and shapers of this whole creation. And it was all good. Do you remember last chapter when I created everything, and then I looked at it, and I said, this is really good. But now, life's going to be hard for you. The woman, as the only one of the two who can bear children, as a way of literally fulfilling my command to be fruitful and multiply, now that very thing that is special and unique to you, that is beautiful and literally life-giving, is going to be hard and painful. And the creation that God has given them, every bit of it pleasing to the eye and good for food, now is going to be a chore and a slog 
there were going to be thorns and thistles. The ground would be hard to till and crops would fail. And then finally, the last consequence that God gives his people, they had to leave the temple. They had to leave this garden temple of Eden that God had put them in to work and to guard. Just like later in the the Bible, when the great high priest has to make ritual purification for a week to be able to enter into the Holy of Holies. And if he is even a little bit impure, he cannot enter into the presence of God. Well, now Adam and Eve, who are inside this garden temple, inside this Eden Holy of Holies, they can't stay because they've been stained with sin. And so God cast them out. And he put a cherubim to guard the east gate so that the tree of life would be protected. Adam and Eve were cast out of the physical presence of the living God to deal with this world that they had broken. And yet, and yet, even when Adam and Eve have broken the one rule that God gave to them, God still demonstrated his nature and his character to them. He still showed them grace. It's a little thing at the end of this chapter. After he pronounces these curses on them, after he tells them what the consequences of their sin are, he gives them animal skins to cover up their shame. Their sin had radical consequences, but even as he was kicking kicking them out of the garden, he still graciously provided for them. Even when we sin, even when we... Even when we sin against God, God's posture to us is still grace. Sin has consequences. They are part of the curse that Adam and Eve has brought down on all of us. And if you are hearing this, and you have a problem with that idea, the idea that because of what Adam and Eve did, now all of us, every human being who descended from Adam and Eve has inherited that sinful nature, if you think that's not fair then you have a real problem with the concept of headship that the Bible talks about, or or representation. Here's an example of that. In in Genesis 14, which we'll get to in a couple months, uh, Abraham, wandering through the desert, meets the high priest, I'm sorry, the, the kind of priest king, this mysterious figure named Melchizedek. And he bows before him and he pays him tribute. But then later on, near the end of the Bible, in Hebrews 7, We're told that both Abraham and Levi pay tribute to Melchizedek. Even though Levi Levi wouldn't be born for a hundred years because he was Abraham's great-grandson and Abraham's son wasn't even alive yet. Why did Levi pay tribute to Melchizedek? Why Why do we think that way? Because as Hebrews said, he was in Abraham. He was part of the the lineage of Abraham. So back to real world consequences and, and curses. They are not just for Adam and Eve. They are for everyone who was in Adam and Eve. Which is all of us. And so even the world itself, the very ground, is cursed because of mankind's sin. It's why we heard in Romans 8 that that creation was groaning and longing to be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Our sin has real-world consequences, and we inherit those consequences. But we also inherit one more thing. Because if this idea of of headship, if this idea of kind of a, a federal representation that Adam and Eve and everyone who was inside them is subjected to all those things, if, if that idea bothers you, then the idea of, of Christ's sacrifice once for all doesn't make any sense either. Because we hear that, be, that 
while in Adam all die, that in Christ we are all made alive. He becomes our last Adam. He becomes our head. And we obtain the righteousness that He has won for us. Because there is one thing in this passage that I skipped right over, and we haven't come to it yet. I said the three things that we see, the consequences of, I'm sorry, the, the results of sin are guilt and sin and consequences. There's one more thing in this passage that for Christians we always have with us, and that is hope. This is probably the most important verse in the chapter. It's Genesis 3.15. Theologians call this the proto-euangelion. Proto is first, euangelion is gospel. This is the first inkling, the first representation of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And it happens three chapters into the Bible. The first hints of the redemption that God himself was going to bring about because of what his, create, because of what his creatures had done. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and his offspring or your lineage and his lineage. Right? He, singular, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This does not mean that God was going to put enmity between Eve's kid and whatever the baby serpent was. It doesn't mean that this was going to be a fight between Satan and Cain or Abel. And it doesn't mean that human beings for the rest of time are going to be scared of snakes, although most are, and those of you who aren't are just weird. This is talking about the offspring of Eve and the offspring of the serpent. Your offspring and her offspring will hate each other, but then it says, he, singular, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. This is talking about Jesus. This is talking about the Messiah, the promised one who is to come, who will crush the head of the serpent and secure the victory over sin, death, and the devil for his people but it would not be without cost. He will crush your head. That is true. That happened. And you will bruise his heel. That is true. That also happened. Christ won for us the victory over sin that we could never, ever, ever win for ourselves. But it came at a, at a tremendous cost. It cost him his own life. It cost him bearing the wrath of God for all of the sins of God's people, past, present, and future. Christ bore Adam and Eve's fruit, sin. Christ bore the sin of that fictional CEO embezzler that I made up if she was real. Christ bore all of the sin that I have tried to hide from my whole life through lying and shame and deceit. And he bore all of the sins that you have ever done or will ever do if you are in Christ. Christ bore all of that stuff. And he died as a result of it. But he didn't stay dead. He was resurrected. He was raised again to newness of life because crushing someone's head is permanent and final and that is what Satan will eventually have done to him when Christ comes back, when the restoration of all things is complete and Satan is vanquished forever. Bruising your heel hurts a lot, but it's not permanent. And so Christ died, but even his death was not permanent because he was raised to newness of life. 
Jesus Christ came to die for people who were his enemies, for people who were enemies of God. He came to die for the wicked. He came to die for sinners, which is what all of us are. Even as people like you and me cried, crucify him and hung him on a cross, he was still bearing the wrath of God for the sins of us. Because even when we sin, even in the midst of our sin, God's posture to his people is always grace. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as sinners. We come to you as people who are simultaneously justified and sinners. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and we are able to enter into your presence. We are able to call you Abba, Father. And we come to you with what we have done, with what we have left undone. We hold it out in front of us, not hiding it in shame. We hold it out in front of us and saying, these are the ways that we have transgressed your law, God. Please have mercy on us, a sinner. We know that you have sent your Holy Spirit to point us to Christ, to convict us of our sin, and to sanctify us. To make us more every day into that picture of Christ as we walk further and further along the path that you have laid out for us, this narrow road. We ask as we go into this week that you would be quick to show us our sin, that you would be clear to show us the depths of our sin and the, the breadth of our sin. But we also ask, Lord, that you would be equally quick to remind us both of our genuine need for repentance and forgiveness, but also of the fact that we have a perfect Savior who has already accomplished this on our behalf. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.